From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Permitless carry has been signed into law in Ohio, and it goes into effect on June 13, 2022. But what comes next? There are multiple pro-gun bills to work on. Plus, what's going on with Ohio primary elections, and where are hunters and sportsmen in the fight for constitutional rights? That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek. Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Sexton, BFA's Legislative Affairs Director. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. I'm glad to be with you. So, Rob, I had uh, tried to call you and text you earlier in the week, and uh, suddenly popped into my brain that maybe you were on a little excursion. Were you out bird hunting earlier in the week? I was uh, a group of family and friends. Uh, we made the trip to Bucyrus, Ohio, to Elkhorn Lake Hunt Club for a quail hunt. You know, um, I do the stuff I do at the state house so that I can go do the things I did on Monday, right? So we got to get out, got to get out to the range. We got to get out hunting, things like that. So we had a great quail hunt, and I really needed that after weeks and weeks and weeks down at the state house. How'd you do? We did pretty good. You know, the whale fly quite a bit faster than uh, a lot of other birds. So we left a few for the next group of hunters, but, but we had a good time. We killed quite a few and I've already seen pictures of some of the others that have already, you know, they've already had some treats with their quail. I haven't cooked mine yet, but I, I will soon. So how do you store those? Do you, do you bring them back and do you do any processing at all? Yeah. Well, right now I've got them in the fridge. You know, we got to do something with them today or tomorrow. I'll have to freeze them. But you know, you can always put them with bacon. I saw one of the guys on the trip, you know, he fried them up in bacon grease with some onions and well, you know what? It's hard to beat bacon. Well, I mean, bacon goes with anything. Absolutely. You know, it goes with breakfast cereal. I'm sorry. It, it goes bacon. My, my wife was talking about bacon. She doesn't, she's not a big bacon fan, but honestly, bacon will go with anything. Absolutely. You know, bacon flavored donuts I've seen, right? So you can do anything with bacon. Yeah. Deep fried. absolutely rob you know we've been dealing with constitutional carry or permitless carry recently and finally got that passed we got it signed into law it's going to go into effect officially on june 13 this year 2022 so uh you know kudos all around now that we've done that we've got a lot of people calling us and saying all right uh that was great now what's next what are you going to do for us today Right. So uh, I, I want to talk about that, talk about some of our other priorities and some of the bills that are out there. But I do want to talk just for a moment about the chaos of these upcoming elections, because from what I'm seeing, it does not look like we're going to have a full primary election in May. So, right. so what are you hearing on that front? Well, you know, as anyone knows who's been keeping up with the news, this really all boils down to one person, right? So the Ohio Supreme court is uh, divided four to three in favor of Republicans. 
But one of those four, the Chief Justice, Maureen O'Connor, has joined the Democrats time and time again to reject the lines for state House, state uh, Senate, along with congressional lines, and forced them to go back again and again to redraw the lines. And it's happened so many times now that, you know, Ohio can't pull off a primary in time because they just don't know what the lines look like. So I think, you know, the regularly scheduled primary will take place for the statewide offices like the governor and the AG and the secretary of state, along with the U.S. Senate primary and uh, the congressional primaries. But the uh, primaries for your state House of Representative and your state Senate, that's going to be delayed. You know, the newspaper this morning said it could be delayed all the way till August, but we haven't heard that officially yet. I think it's just a giant unknown at this point. Yeah, I mean, nothing's official on, on any of this. So it's really everyone dealing with elections. We're just kind of winging it. Right. And the federal courts became involved this week as some conservative organizations filed suit to try to force the issue, try to force the federal courts to wade in. Of course, the Ohio Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice O'Connor and the Democrats, are threatening to hold the redistricting commission, which is largely controlled by Republican office holders, in contempt for not complying with, you know, with more Democrat-favored districts. And so it's just a giant mess, and and I'm not sure how it's going to come out. So, Rob, I'm guessing they're going to solve that one way or another. We're just going to have to wait to find out. In the meantime, we do have some legislation to work on. Uh, We had announced pretty early on that we had three priorities. One of them, the permitless carry bill that we got passed. So that was number one on the list. We have a couple others. One is the emergency powers bills. There are actually two of these companion bills, HP 325 and SB 185, And fortunately, each of those has passed its originating chamber, which means we have plenty of support in both the House and the Senate. So what what do you see happening with uh, emergency powers? Well, I think, you know, the House and the Senate, they're going to have to come to some sort of agreement about which bill to move forward, or frankly, if they're going to move a bill forward. As you say, the votes are there. If the bill is actually called up for hearing, called up for a vote, you know, the state house has been fairly paralyzed during this redistricting mess. So a lot of things have just come to a screeching halt. You know, I think the legislators could use to hear from gun owners right now about how important that bill is. And if we could return to this redistricting topic for a minute and make them relate, you know, the, the upshot of this court battle is that it's very likely that the legislature will be less conservative in the next session. And so if there's ever a time to get done the heavy lifting, just like constitutional carry, this emergency powers bill needs to move this year. And just to remind everybody, I know that this is not one of those big bills that gets a lot of news coverage and it's not real controversial. So it's not on some people's radar, but the idea behind these bills is to prevent state and local governments from infringing on Second Amendment rights during declared emergencies. Right. So, you know, we've been under declared emergency uh, for a good part of the past couple of years when it, when it comes to 
COVID. We saw some bad things happening in other states in the past with things like Hurricane Katrina and and other situations we've seen bad things happening where Second Amendment rights have been infringed. So the idea of these bills is not that there's a problem right now in Ohio to deal with. What we're trying to do is to forestall problems in the future. You're talking about the legislature is going to be different while the administration might be different as well. So, That's right. you know, we could end up with a much more left-leaning, uh, much more blue state in the future because Ohio is one of those states that kind of, you know, waggles back and forth a little bit. And we don't know what's coming down the pike. I mean, five, 10 years from now, we could see, you know, right now there, there are some anti-gun bills that really aren't going anywhere. We could see some bills like that start to move in the future. So we need to get a bill like this passed now while we can do it and to make sure that we're not going to have rights infringed if someone just decides to declare an emergency. Okay, so that question was asked, you know, by some of the legislators that are on the anti-gun side that, you know, isn't this a solution in search of a problem? But look, I mean, if we wait around till our governor is someone like Gretchen Whitner up in Michigan, we're not going to have the, the political ability to get something like this passed. Now's the time to put in place the protections that we need, because I don't think this will be the last declared emergency you're going to see in Ohio. Yeah, the fight for rights of all kinds, including the fight for Second Amendment rights, you know, it's an ongoing battle. It's not like a one and done, pass the laws you want, and everyone just closes up shop and retires. We, You know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Things can go back the other way. So, you know, we want to get past what we can get past and then stay vigilant. And, you know, working on elections, that's important because if the wrong people get in there, if we're not cultivating the right kind of people to rise to these higher offices, then we're going to be in trouble in the future. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the one thing that this whole mess in the court has really brought home, I think a lot of people skip over those judicial races, right? You don't know who they are. You, uh, you, you know, you haven't heard of them in the past. And so they skip over them. Well, I'll tell you what. We've got a clear-cut choice for our Supreme Court races for this coming election. If that court comes back with a 4-3 Democrat majority, you know, I, I think that'll be a place where gun rights will be in jeopardy every time they come before that court. People pay a lot of attention to the Supreme Court of the United States, and I think people get how important that is. We have a Supreme Court here in Ohio, too, and it's important for our laws. We, we have to pay attention to that because you know, our state laws affect us a lot more in the long term than federal laws do. They sure do. And and that's a great transition for the next bill we should talk about, right? So why don't we talk about House Bill 99, Dean, and, and just the role that the court played in getting us to the spot we are? Well, yeah, uh, because, you know, we're talking about, um, I always just bluntly refer to it as armed teachers. Some people don't like to talk about it that way, but that's what it kind of boils down to is having you know, teachers and administrators in schools armed as part of a security protocol. And a lot of the school systems in Ohio had programs just like that. And our interpretation of Ohio law always was that local school boards control their own security. That's right. So what I'm seeing in a lot of the news coverage is, well, you guys have this HB 99. You're trying to change the law. You're trying to get rid of, you know, all the training that's required, and, and I'll say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 
That was never the understanding of what the law was. What happened was some Bloomberg lawyers came into Ohio, filed a lawsuit, and we, we covered this extensively. And then they got a Supreme Court ruling that unfortunately went the wrong way. So it kind of changed everything, you know, very, very recently. And the way it is right now, if you're going to go armed in a school as part of a, an approved security program, you have to have over 700 hours of training. You basically have to have the training of a police officer, which includes mostly stuff that's completely irrelevant to stopping an active killer in a school. So it's stuff like, you know, tactical driving, you know, for a police cruiser or, you know, writing reports dealing with domestic violence, learning all the laws in Ohio and, you know, all this stuff that officers have to do, but has nothing to do with stopping somebody in a school who's going room to room and murdering people. Yeah, I, I mean, the idea that in order to protect the kids in a school, you need to know how to properly give Miranda rights or you need to prop, you know, know how to properly transport a prisoner to a county jail. You know, I mean, that, that's, it's asinine. And that's what really is just still to this day makes me angry to think about that ruling by that court that they would ever think that it was appropriate, that that is what the law meant. And I think it was disingenuous. I think they know that when they installed that interpretation that you must have 700 hours, they know what they're really doing is they're killing the program that would allow for armed personnel to protect our kids. And that was the goal all along. That's right. Uh, you know, the, the, those Bloomberg lawyers came in and they basically just killed these programs from school to school. You know, this is part of what our, uh, we have, there's a program called Faster Saves Lives run by Buckeye Firearms Foundation. That's what that is. That's the training that a lot of these school districts have taken. And, and we're not just talking about one or two districts. I mean, we're, I'm not sure what they're up to, 70 or 80 of the counties in Ohio have school districts um, uh, with people trained through that program. There were a right. lot of these programs all over Ohio, and basically this court decision just shut it all down. That's right. And, you know, I've been asked by several media outlets, you know, well, don't you think maybe they should have police officers there instead? Well, I think school districts can opt to have, you know, more resource officers if they like, but it's all, there's also a cost factor to that, right? So, you know, you have a huge high school campus you're going to, you're going to need more than one officer on one end of the school, right? So the idea that a school can have a safety plan that includes armed teachers is just one more tool. And, you know, right now these schools are vulnerable. Uh, and I guess the message that I would give to our friends down at the state house, especially in the Ohio Senate where house bill 99 currently sits is that every day that that bill isn't passed is just another day of vulnerability for those schools. I just hope, Rob, that it doesn't come to the point where we have a, a major school incident here in Ohio. And, you know, it's because a school was just a soft target. And I would hate to, to wait for that moment and, and for, you know, the legislators to say, well, yeah, okay, let's pass the bill now. Right. Well, you know, we should have passed the bill before it even happened. That's so, right. I mean, schools are vulnerable right now. That's right. Yeah, that bill needs to move. So, you know, those are, you, you know, so we've named the top two priorities for the remainder of session. We need to get emergency powers done while 
people still have it in their minds, the immense power that government was able to wield over the last two years. I think it's very topical for people to see all the things, you know, businesses shut down, churches shut down. We're talking about across the country, obviously, you know, gun ranges, firearms, commerce shut down in some states, all while that stuff is still very fresh in our minds that bill needs to, uh, to be uh, sent to the governor for his signature. And then, of course, this uh, House Bill 99, the school bill, you know, every every day that goes by that our schools aren't protected, as you say, you know, I, God forbid we get to the point where we have to learn that lesson the hard way. But those are the two that we're going to be pressing the hardest on for the remainder of session. And there's still some time yet to accomplish things. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to hope we can get some votes on those. Now, there's a couple bills that I would say are moot at this point. HB 227 was also a constitutional carry bill. Well, now that we have SB 215 passed, that's essentially a dead bill. There's, there's no point in moving that one because, we, you know, basically we've accomplished that. There's another one, HB 89, to repeal the duty to promptly inform. Well, that's dealt with directly in SB 215. So that one bill really kind of made these two bills kind of a moot point and you're uh, not going to see any action on those going forward. Right. Yeah, there's no reason to pass either of those bills, so I, you know, I I don't think we'll see any further hearings on them. Now there's some other bills out there. Of course, uh, we support uh, a variety of bills. One of them, HB 243 for knife preemption. This is a really interesting bill and it's pretty straightforward basically if you understand how gun preemption works in Ohio. They're applying the same idea with knives, basically just saying that, um, you know, we're forbidding political subdivisions like cities from regulating the transportation, possession, carrying, sale, transfer, purchasing or gifting, whatever, licensing, registration. You're just forbidding all of that from on the local level. So knives would be protected in the same way that guns are protected, and you'd have basically one set of laws governing those around the state. And the reason that's important is a lot of people who carry firearms for self-defense also carry a knife. Right, right. Uh, And these are, I think, easy to digest, entirely reasonable. I mean, knife preemption is is a bill that can easily be moved. I actually think it's got a pretty decent chance to move. Uh, and, of course, we're supportive of that bill also. And there's not a lot of controversy. I I would have to look it up again, but I don't think there were – were there any opponents testifying against this bill? Uh, you may have had some police officer opposition from, like, the FOP maybe, but but it was very quiet for the most part. Um, I, I You know, I think, I think there's just not a lot of opposition to the bill. Again, it's going to get down to, with limited time in session, you know, will the – uh, in this case, will the Senate prioritize the bill? Then we have a, a much bigger bill, HB 297, the Firearms Industry Non-Discrimination Act or the FIND Act. Now, this one's a little more difficult to explain, but this is about stopping corporations who are trying to get government contracts from discriminating against the firearm and ammunition industry. So it's not really trying to regulate businesses directly, but it's saying, look, if you're going to do business with the government, you can't discriminate because you're not allowed to discriminate in any other way. So why, when it comes to a constitutional right, would the government be hiring businesses 
that discriminate against people uh, who uh, own firearms or, you know, uh, for who are in, involved with the ammunition industry. Yeah, I think, Dean, why don't you provide some examples of, of discrimination that you've seen over the years? That I think that would be very helpful. Well, I mean, um, a lot of this has to do with if you run a firearms business, sometimes you have a hard time getting a loan. Uh, I know that we had uh, some discrimination where we had a, a merchant account, you know, one of these credit card processing accounts, and we were running a big event, and we found out basically in the middle of the event that um, our account had been shut down. And and the best that we could figure was that they just found out that we were a firearms organization. We weren't selling guns. We weren't in business or anything like that, but just because we were in any way related to the firearms industry, they just said, look, that's just against our our policy, and uh, sorry, too bad, we're going to shut you down. So we had to use a different merchant account to process credit cards during that event. That kind of thing is actually pretty common, and there are some people who testified in favor of HB 297 who, you know, run much bigger businesses, you know, firearms ranges, retail stores, and so on, who are talking about the same thing. They have trouble getting loans. They have, uh, you know, trouble with credit. They have trouble with these merchant accounts. And it really is just just plain discrimination. It's not about companies doing anything illegal. It's just about discrimination against certain kinds of businesses, including firearms. Yeah, so in general, you know, your average conservative person is going to feel a little uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, the government trying to tell someone who they can and cannot do business with. But I think, although I think I agree with that general philosophy, we have to recognize what's going on in our corporate world right now. You know, a new term is floating around, you know, woke capitalism, right? Where these corporations are actually participating with people on the extreme left to squelch or destroy entire business segments. And the idea that the firearms industry or gun owners will not be targets of that. We've already got examples of it. And I think the find act is an attempt to make sure that people are going to be able to buy a gun. People are going to be able to buy a gun with a credit card. Someone who wants to open a sporting goods store can get a business loan, right? Uh, Someone who runs a ducks unlimited banquet where guns are given away. They want to be able to process credit cards. Of course, you know, you can really expand this out to the, the prohibitions on social media to even talk about firearms, right? So while philosophically, I think, you know, we all would agree, hey, keep government out of these kinds of things. The fact is a large segment of the corporate world is conspiring with the left to put an end to firearms ownership. And so, you know, we, if we sit back on our hands in our ivory tower and claim conservatism, they're going to just keep closing the gates until they shut us out. And this is another one of these bills that is not particularly controversial. However, it is getting some major pushback from the banking industry in Ohio, which is a pretty powerful lobby. And it's not necessarily, I think, a matter of being anti-Second Amendment so much as it's just, they just don't want the, the extra rules. Well, you know, we've actually had conversations with the Ohio Bankers Association or the Ohio Banking Association. And, you know, their biggest argument is, you know, what's next, right? If you provide this level of uh, protection for firearms, what's going to be the next group, 
right? And and so it, they look at it as precedent setting, uh, which I certainly understand. But boy, I'll tell you, you know, we heard the testimony from folks who have opened their sporting goods businesses, the the hoops they had to jump through and hurdles they had to overcome just to get a business loan. I, I think the Find Act is a legitimate policy to protect the firearms industry. And, and as a result, it's Second Amendment protection. If you can't get a firearm, then you don't really have Second Amendment protection. So, Rob, let's uh, just change gears here a little bit. I know that you're a hunter. You're involved with some other sportsmen's groups like Sportsman's Alliance. Yes. And um, I know here at Buckeye Firearms Association, historically, we deal with a lot more of the, you know, hardcore kind of gun stuff, self-defense and so on. But in recent years, I've I've been, um, you know, pushing for us to be a little bit more involved in sportsmen's issues because I think that those are Second Amendment issues as well because it's all about, you know, the culture. You know, uh, there are a lot of hunters out there, a lot of sportsmen, and if their rights are being infringed, ultimately that affects everybody. So, you know, if, no, if nothing else, just from a pragmatic or logistical uh, standpoint. But um, let me ask you, you know, really in the sportsman world, what's really going on right now? Are they, are sportsmen facing the same kind of problems that we are in the gun world? I mean, is there a lot of um, legislation being proposed out there to infringe on hunting rights? Sure. You know, um here in Ohio, not so much, you know, uh, we've got a fairly conservative government. And so that means attacks on hunting are much more rare, but across the country, you know, there are, there's literally more than a thousand bills introduced in the last session that would one way or another infringe on the rights of hunters. And there is an animal rights or anti-hunting lobby, just like there is an anti-gun lobby that invest millions of dollars into taking the rights of hunters and fishermen and trappers away. As you might imagine, they're much more active in the blue states, but their attacks just range all over the board, you know, from raising the age of buying a firearm to 21, you know, which would have obviously 18, 19, 20 year old hunters can't get access to a gun, extensive regulations that make it hard to keep a good quality hunting dog or to drive the cost of obtaining a good quality hunting dog laws that prevent you from bringing a trophy into your state from a hunting trip that you might take somewhere else in the United States or even abroad. You know, we call it in the hunting world, we call it death by a thousand cuts. If they can restrict your ability to find public land to hunt on, if they can drive the cost up of going hunting. If they can make it to where it's hard to keep a hunting dog, you know, you all these things together they just want to make hunting such a giant pain in the butt that you give it up and that's basically the goal of the anti-hunting lobby and that's the sort of thing that similar to the second amendment you know it's just got to be defended every single day and you know hunting that this is really dealing with you know traditions and families it has to do with the culture and, and this is where a lot of people are introduced to firearms to begin with right you know if you're you know eight or ten years old and uh, you go out hunting, you know, with your family. I, I remember going out with my grandfather when he would do some small game hunting to squirrels and rabbits, things like that. That's where I was introduced to firearms. Right. And so, you know, here's an example. We know from research that if a person doesn't take up hunting in one way or another, just to try it by the age of 12, that they're far less likely to ever take it on. So when a state like New York has a minimum age for hunting of 16, They've got it baked into their law 
to make it less likely that someone will ever take up hunting. When you know that access to land is the biggest barrier to people hunting, and then you see a law that says, well, you can't hunt within a thousand feet of a dwelling, you know that they're attempting to make it to where it's just much harder to find a place to hunt. And so it's a pretty sophisticated attack these animal rights groups use. We don't see it as much in Ohio, uh, but it's very active and it's very active across the entire country. Where's the funding for this coming? Because I know that, you know, when we're dealing with, you know, hardcore Second Amendment issues, a lot of it's coming from, you know, billionaires like Bloomberg, uh, you know, who's who's literally putting hundreds of millions of dollars into anti-gun measures in the hunting or sportsman's world. Where is all that funding coming from? Right. You know, so the biggest of all the animal rights groups is the Humane Society of the United States. And boy, you talk about a great piece of marketing just in their name alone. It's been shown that many people, when they donate to HSUS, they believe they're donating to the local dog and cat shelter. But the reality is they don't operate dog and cat shelters. When you give to the Humane Society of the United States, you're giving to an organization that is purposed with ending the use of animals, right? So the use of animals for hunting, the use of animals in farming, livestock, uh, medical research, the whole nine yards. They're an enormous organization funding-wise along the size of maybe the National Rifle Association, and they've got staff in every single state, and they are the, the most effective voice for the animal rights lobby. You know, a lot of people, they think of PETA, you know, because PETA does very, you know, crazy stuff that gets them on TV. But it's the Humane Society that every day is active in the state capitals across the country trying to take hunting rights away. Rob, I was reading about something going on in Rhode Island where they're trying to mandate background checks to purchase ammo or reloading supplies. Yeah. So, you know, that would obviously affect hunting right there. It would affect pretty much everything. That bill was so crazily written that you you would have to have a background check just to transfer ammunition to someone, right? So that bird hunt that I was on on Monday, one of us may have allegedly shot so many times and missed so many times that they needed to borrow some shells from someone else in our group. No, no, that wouldn't have been you, of course. Of course not. You know, I'm 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 quite the marksman, as you can imagine. Uh, that's that's what I've heard. <laughs> but it, under that bill, you'd be breaking the law if you were to lend, lend, you were to give shotgun shells to your hunting partner. So the, uh, they want to make you go through a background check every time you buy ammunition. It, again, that's sort of the death by a thousand cuts, right? If they just make it more tedious, a little bit more hoops to jump through. We all know how long it takes to go through a background check when you buy a firearm. How about every time you go in to buy two, three, four boxes of shotgun shells or a brick of 22 to take to the range? How about that? It's going to extend your shopping experience by an extra hour while you fill out government paperwork. So, Rob, in the hunting world, in the sportsman's world, is there as much political activism as in what I would call the hard, hardcore gun rights crowd? Because I sort of have the impression in the past that a lot of hunters kind of feel like, well, I just have a shotgun or I have a, you know, an old hunting rifle and I'll go out you know, a couple times a year. They're not going to come for that. You know, you know I'm, I'm not going to do anything with an AR or anything like that. So, uh, you know, I'm safe. I, I really don't need to be involved. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, that's a, 
an accurate stereotype of the average hunter. You know, human nature is, as you know, you only get excited, you know, when you think it's your own personal situation being impacted. So I think there are a lot of deer hunters out there that think, you know, oh gosh, deer hunting, you know, they're never going to come after that or duck hunters. They're never going to come after that. But the hunting community is very diverse in terms of its interest. So you see a lot more activism within those who have certain hobbies that are under fire. So for example, those who are recreational trappers have been a target for the last 40 years. We find them to be a very active demographic. Those who hunt with dogs, very active demographic. So it all gets down, I think, to whether you really believe your rights are under threat. I think we've got a bigger job to do with just run-of-the-mill deer hunters who you know, just probably don't see the threats on the horizon the same as the rest of us. Do you think that's changing at all? Or are some of the groups like Sportsman's Alliance or the other uh, groups that are trying to protect hunting rights, are people getting more involved, becoming more aware of the threats out there? Yeah, I think the Sportsman's Alliance obviously does a good job at letting run-of-the-mill hunters know about these threats. And, and with the increases in reach that social media has brought, you know, that that's enabled pro hunting groups like Sportsman's Alliance to speak more quickly to, you know, the hunting community. So, yeah, I think it's getting better in terms of their activism. But, you know, when you all get down to it, the average hunter in the fall, they'd rather be in the woods hunting than, you know, going down to the state house and talking to politicians. And so we've just got to uh, continue to work hard to convince them that if they want to keep doing what they're doing, they're going to need to be as active as, you know, Second Amendment activists are. Yeah, I've pointed out in the past that, you know, activism on the right and the left is a little different. On the left, you have basically a, a group of activists who will take on any number of issues. So, you know, it could be the same people working against gun rights that are working against hunting rights. Uh, they, they just sort of pull from the same group of people all the time. I've got a feeling that on our side of this, it's a lot more specific. So, you know, if you're concerned about concealed carry, you'll get involved with that, but probably nothing else. If you're, and like you say, you know, if you're a trapper, you might get involved only if it deals with trapping. So it's a lot more compartmentalized and it's, I think, a lot more difficult to activate people. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, um, I've been involved in, in bills to legalize Sunday hunting, you know, believe it or not, there's nine states that don't allow landowners to choose to let people hunt on their property, or they don't allow people to choose which day they hunt on seven days a week. But you talk to people in those states, they're they've, they're so used to that prohibition that it, it doesn't mean as much to them as it does, you know, as you, as you might think it would for the rest of us. And I think it's just a matter of if you don't really perceive your own rights or hanging in the balance, then you might be a little more complacent than you should be. I think for second amendment people, you know, we've seen them, they, they come at, at us from all directions, right? So whether you're a handgun guy or a rifle guy or a modern sport, sporting rifle, we've seen what the anti-gunners will do. And that, I think we realize we're all in jeopardy there. Yeah. So it's just an ongoing fight and we have to, uh, to remain vigilant, uh, keep passing these good bills, keep trying to defeat the bad bills. And, um, uh, I'm not sure, Rob, do you think it'll ever get to the point in the future where all of this just becomes non-controversial and we kind of get to a sweet spot where 
we're just not debating these issues anymore, or do you think it's just going to be ongoing? Oh, I, I don't think it's going to stop. I, I've heard over the years, especially from hunters, as you reference, you know, oh, I'm really, I'm just tired of these fights. I'm tired of having to fight for our rights, you know, and my response to that is, you know, we live in a republic where people elect people that represent their views and then they get to vote on the policies that impact us. So if we get tired of advocating, we're basically just surrendering the field to the other side. And let's face it, this country's not getting more conservative. This country's getting more, unfortunately, liberal in many ways. And so for those of us who, you know, represent a conservative viewpoint, firearms ownership or hunting, as we've been talking about, our rights are going to be under threat if we're not willing to fight for them. Well, that kind of brings up an entirely different topic that we don't have time for in this podcast. But, you know, I'd like to have a conversation at some point with you or with others about, you know, disconnecting or decoupling the idea of gun rights from, you know, conservatism or liberalism. There, there are a contingent of liberal gun owners out there, liberal hunters. For example, I attended a, a sportsman's meeting or seminar and they were talking about how there are a lot of people who are not the typical hunters getting involved in hunting not for traditional reasons not because you know it's it's something that came down through their family or not because they're conservative but for things like they just want really you know clean uh you know non-gmo kind of locally sourced meat and and all of this which you know might make some of us kind of look at them a little funny, but they've got their own reasons and they're getting into hunting and that's what's really important. So I don't know that gun rights really has to be you know, linked with conservatism or liberalism. And I'm wondering if one day it can become uncoupled from that and doesn't become just another one of these kind of tribal fights, you know, between Republicans and Democrats. So the current environment at the state house is entirely tribal when it comes to gun rights. We've seen all, all you have to do is look at the vote on constitutional carry. It was entirely party line. Look at the votes on uh, duty to retreat, the repeal of duty to retreat last session. It was entirely party line. Having said that, there's opportunities here for the gun community to reach out to people who aren't just conservative politically. You know, what's the number one concern in society today right now? It's crime. And so we're seeing record purchasing by minorities, record purchasing by women of firearms. Well, why are they doing that? Because they've seen that, you know, the, the streets are out of control. There's a sense of anarchy and they want to be able to protect themselves and their families. Well, those new gun owners, they're not just ideologically aligned with the right. And that presents real opportunities for, you know, Buckeye firearms and organizations like ours to reach out to them and maybe to restrain our you know, partisanship and in, in conversations, because bottom line is we need every vote we can get. And wouldn't it be nice in five years if we could say the next time there's a gun bill that we could pick off a half a dozen or 10 Democrats to vote for gun bills the way it was 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, uh, we used to have a, uh, a Democrat governor who was pretty blue on everything, except when it came to uh, guns and hunting, Governor Strickland. I mean, he was right. really good, very easy to work with. On that one issue, now, you know, he disappointed us when he went to D.C. And he does did some other things that, 
kind of uh, irritated a lot of us. But, you know, that's possible. It is possible to decouple this whole idea of gun rights from right and left. It's just right now it tends to be a red issue. But I think that that's something that uh, maybe we can talk about in the future. Yep. And I, and I think the, the, the crime surge provides the perfect opportunity for that kind of outreach. So, Rob, thanks for being on the podcast today and sharing your insights with us. I'm sure we'll have you back again soon as some of these bills start to move and other things start to happen. So uh, thanks, and we'll see you again pretty soon. All right. Thanks, Dean. It's been great to be with you. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.